One week season, fam. Sharp football analysis nation. We are back. Week four. Week three is in the books, and what a week it was. We saw some historic level production from an NFL perspective. We saw some historic level production from a fantasy perspective. Moving forward, now we have what some are calling the game of the year up to this point. And in 2021, at one week season, we had this rule, and we called it a hard and fast rule. It was always one Viking. So I posed the question, are we approaching that territory with this 2023 version of the Miami Dolphins? Do we need to inst- institute a rule of always one dolphin? <laughs> More on that in today's episode of Searching for Ceiling, presented by One Week Season and Sharp Football Analysis. One week season. As always, you know the drill. I am joined by Rich Rebar, not Rybar. Rich, how are we doing this weekend, man? <laughs> well, we're doing good. I mean, it's crazy. We're, uh, you know, by the time we get to Sunday, it will be October, uh, oh. know, which is pretty wild to think about. You know, the first month is already in the books. You know, it, it goes, it feels like it goes so fast, right? Like the, the process know. throughout the week. We, we, we put all this work in for six days to get the Sunday. We hope it works out. Sometimes you play too much Josh Kelly, and it definitely doesn't. But, uh, you know, we're going to try to come back in week four and try to Damn make it. the magic happen. Rich, too soon, man. Too soon. Too soon. <laughs> Happy Friday to you as well, Chris. And we appreciate those words, Bart. Uh, we are here, man. We are here every week. If you're missing out on this, tell your friends. Tell Grandma. Come hang out with Searching for Ceiling, presented by One Week Season and Sharp Football Analysis. You'll see Rich and I every single week. So that introduction, Rich, is going to set us up for where we're going to start this week. Um, And it's with the, kind of alluded to it in multiple different ways, with this Miami Dolphins and Buffalo Bills game. We're going to spend a little bit of time, similar to how we did last week, with the quote-unquote game of the week. And obviously... The underlying tone here is we're searching for potential hidden ceiling. Uh, So with that, I'll just throw it directly over to you. What are you seeing from this game? And are there any spots where we might find some sneaky ceiling here? Yeah, this game in general is is tricky for a couple levels. Uh, one, there absolutely is like an avenue where this game is like fantastic, right? Like we, we get this huge run out. We have the two highest scoring teams in the NFL on a per drive basis. But there is like cable components for like this game to like still be in like the mid 20s and like kind of like not fully pop. Also, we have yep. like a lot of salary uh, like implications here. Uh, there's there's two sides of this. One, if we just look at the Dolphins side, ever since that Dolphins Ravens game last year, I think it was in week two or week three, they have made it extremely hard for you to build two a double stacks. Like even with like Jalen yeah. Waddle's price never has like dropped to the levels of like where he actually probably should be priced before because of that inherent reason like they've seen what the the ceiling offers when this like offense just absolutely bakes so if you if you want to play two a double stacks they are uh 48 of your salary on DraftKings, 42 percent on FanDuel, and inherently if you say well all right well i'll just pull waddle out you the guy you are going to want to run that back with is stefan diggs and he's more expensive than waddle on yeah. both sites So that increases that salary even more. So it's very hard from that aspect uh, to kind of like go crazy with this game. So you have to look at kind of the ancillary components and you can say, when looking at the Miami Dolphins side, there's a path to where the Dolphins can score points 
where it's not the passing game. We've already seen it, right, in two weeks. In, in week two, they had 24 points scored. It was a Raheem Mostert game. Uh, Mike McDaniel, you know, used, used that, you know, that, that outside run scheme while the Patriots dropped back, played a lot of zone coverage. They put a lot of emphasis on Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddell in that game. So what yeah. do the Bills come out and do and approach this, uh, you know, defensively? Last year, the Bills were aggressive with Tua. They only blitzed 18.8% of the time against everyone in the NFL, but they blitzed two of 32% of the time in the two games. It didn't work. I mean, yeah. Tua absolutely cooked them. Uh, he had the second highest pass rating that any quarterback had against the Bills last year in his two you know, meetings. So what do they do? Because when they didn't blitz Tua last year, he averaged nine and a half yards per pass attempt. So it's kind of a damned if you damned if you don't situation with this offense. But we have seen avenues where the Dolphins – running backs can score a lot of points and not just last week. So the Bills side is a little bit different. You know, not to just eat up the whole shot clock here, but the Bills side's a little bit different because you figure if the Bills are going to get this game there and the Bills are going to score 30 points or push, you know, upper 20s, it's going to go through Josh Allen, right? Like it always does. So it, it, you can get a little bit more, I think, creative with like the Bills ancillary pass catchers than you can the Miami ones. Uh, also, when you look at the target stack, uh, you know, with the Dolphins, like we're just not seeing the Barrioses, the Julian Hills now who people are excited about uh, and uh, River Craycrafts of the world, like get actual yeah. target value. Yeah. And there, there's also some interesting aspects with this game because you mentioned River Craycraft, uh, Eric Azunkanma, Azunkanma, uh, oh, let's get that right. Come on, Hilo. Um, those guys have been on the injury report. Uh, they've missed practice each of the first two days of the week. Um, but when you look at how kind of Miami is handles their offensive design, it's, and it, and it goes back to last year with Mike McDaniel, right? It's like, why are you not using tight ends or why are you not using the secondary ancillary pieces of the offense? And it's like, we got Tyree kill, dude. We got Jalen Waddle, dude. We got Raheem Mostert, dude. Uh, why would we use those guys? <laughs> so, uh, right. that kind of discussion is like, this is a hyper a concentrated, hyper-focused offense. And you mentioned the running game. This is very interesting to me because we have a Bills defense who primarily has been playing out of nickel this season. They've used a lot of cover two. They've used a lot of cover three. Um, and when you talk about like if I'm sitting there in Mike McDaniel's shoes and this opposing defense is showing me a lot of nickel packages and they're trying to hammer down, uh, basically play a more prevent style and, and keep the game in front of me, it's like, yeah, I'm going to use this outside zone run scheme and just run all over them. The other piece of that, and this is goes into Mike McDaniel's genius or madness or however you want to call it. This dude is playing chess, man, with the league. He This year, in their run game, in addition to this spread style zone gap outside rushing scheme, he's instituting some like... Fancy inside zone guard pulling gap run scheme. I don't even know what to call it because the league hasn't seen it really this right. um, until this year. And it has been effective because he is running a lot off tackle. He is using a lot of pulling tackles and guards, that standard zone gap run blocking scheme. But now he's run, he's doing that, some of those principles, between the guards or off center or off guard. And it's like this inside zone run block gap like we don't even know what to call it but it's incredible what he's doing with this offense and now i mean and we saw it in week two that sprung raheem mostert for his 42 yarder touchdown uh we saw it in week three that sprung raheem mostert for one of his touchdowns that sprung devon 
A. Chan, get that right, uh, <laughs> for one of his touchdowns. So this matchup is very interesting to me for the sense of trying to put ourselves in the coach's shoes and, and a part of this chess match that's going to be going on. And it's very interesting. And I don't honestly don't know what to make of it, but I know that Mike McDaniel is a madman. He's a genius and he is doing some stuff that the league quite simply has not seen. And that is after doing stuff that the league had not seen last year. So what do you make of this rushing attack? Are you ex as excited about it as I seem to be? Yeah, I mean, he's how, how could you not be, especially the, the past two weeks, right? I mean, he, he's just cooking it, cooking it all up. And, you know, you're getting a lot of that stuff, too. They're showing you you're getting some of that inside running game, like with, with some of that pullers. But like they're showing they're doing they're still doing all the back end bells and whistles. Like you're still getting the jet yeah. motion. You're getting the orbit looks where you're counting for Tyree Kill coming in motion. Right. Like this isn't just like Braxton Barrios coming for like an orbit look. Right. Like it's Tyree yeah. Hill. Uh, so the defense is going to be drawn to that and it's pulling all the eyes and attention or just giving you to freeze for a second. Right. Like you, you hold the defense still for a second with guys like. Uh, you know, most there and uh, Achan now, or you know, whatever yeah. you want to. when you listen, when you score 50 PPR points in your second career game, you can tell us whatever you want to be called. That's cool. He could yeah. go by whatever. We will bow down. We, we will make it happen. <laughs> but <laughs> when you have that much speed and you're able to just get the defense to 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 not you know play downhill for a second, like that's it's it's over. It's and we've seen it. You know, now two weeks in a row, and even going back to last year. And the Bills are such a boomer bust run defense. We talked about it a little bit a couple weeks ago with, you know, like Josh Jacobs coming into that game. And they're doing the same thing they did last year. They're really good on like rate of runs where they're getting high stuff rates. They're hitting opponents in the backfield. But then they, when they're, when you get to the outside in the second level against them, you make their defensive backs have to tackle. And mm -hmm. that's been a huge problem for them the past two years. And they give up a lot of huge runs in the run game. Uh, we saw it again last week with Brian Robinson. Brian Robinson had another, another like huge gain against them, but it did, you know eventually he got scripted out of the game, but it didn't matter. He only had ten carries, but yeah. we've seen it again to start this year. They're thirty first in the NFL in rate of running back runs that go for ten or more yards, but they are also third in the NFL in stuff rate. So this is the kind of game where like yeah, even if Mike McDaniel's has a couple unsuccessful runs, like he's probably going to pop pop a few here. And that, from a schematic sense, and how Sean McDermott is running that defense. Those metrics make perfect sense. Yes. You, if you combine the on tape and yeah, we watch tape here. If you combine like on tape and you combine the underlying metrics, we're left with a lot of that makes sense because Sean McDermott is utilizing heavy rates of nickel package. He's utilizing heavy rates of cover two and cover three, but his front, his linebacking core are extremely shallow. They are playing it very, very close to the line of scrimmage. And what that means is it requires a certain type of linebacker to be athletic enough and smart enough from a positioning mindset to cover down on those B gap, uh, those B gaps um, based on his three, four hybrid, four, three defensive front. But it also requires them to drop in coverage. And that is why I'm so interested in this Miami Dolphins backfield this week is because now when you're attacking that where you have seven or eight sometimes defenders within the first two yards of the line of scrimmage, when you're talking about zone gap rushing off of tackle against that, that could generate some of these splash plays that we're talking about. And then once they get those linebackers to drop back a little bit, 
that's when Mike McDaniel is throwing these inside zones concepts at you. And it's insane. So yeah, I like from a, again, Mike McDaniel is a genius, a madman, whatever the case may be, however you want to classify him. But what he is doing is very difficult to defend. And it is going to be very difficult for Sean McDermott to defend. In that same discussion, we have to look at Vic Fangio on the other side and his defensive scheme. He's basically the coach that put the league on this current trajectory of yeah. two high shells. He's, he's the guy that like put this all into motion. Um, and when you have that coming up against this Bills defense, that significantly dents the splash play expectation, we'll call it, uh, or potential for a guy like Gabe Davis, where he is now, the, the their backs are going to be backing off. They're going to have their eyes on the quarterback. They're going to be looking and managing and not letting anything over top with their eyes in the backfield. So with that, that kind of sets up for a bump to the volume expectation for a guy like Stefan Diggs. It is very interesting for a guy like James Cook, who is right around the 60 to 65% snap rate that we want to see for a lead back. Uh, we know that he is extremely involved in the pass game. So when we talk about hidden ceiling or searching for ceiling, while the field is going to be interested in this game, we're probably not going to see a lot of people want to play both backs or multiple backs from this game or some of these, you know, like Dawson Knox and Dalton Kincaid, who also set up well to take advantage of a too high scheme. So um, there's a lot of interesting layers to this game. And when you have two defensive minds that are looking to play this more prevent style uh, of defensive scheme, it's going to lead to these teams being more forced to march the field, string together drives, put together eight to 12 play drives in order to get into the red zone. So the volume should be there, but we have a lowered expectation, I think, than the field is probably going to think in this spot of these splash plays developing, mm -hmm. I think for everybody, but the Miami run game, which is just stupid right now. <laughs> it's, it's so good. Uh, what are your thoughts on like, does this game have more paths to failure? I think than the field is probably thinking here. I think when you use the term failure, maybe in context of, you know, maybe trying to chase what happened in like chargers Vikings, you know, we yeah. go something like that. Uh, I do think this game definitely, I think do think both teams definitely get into the twenties. Um, but do we have like a 60 point game? Do we have a 70 point game, right? Like maybe some people are thinking of, you know, even old Chiefs Ram style for a couple of years ago. Maybe the Dolphins are just that damn good. We'll see. I mean, we did see, like I said, two, we have two weeks ago sample where the Patriots at least like made them work. Yeah. So uh, that's that like is so something to think about. We even the come, team coming off of 70 points. I do think, though, that like it could be a situation where like Stefan Diggs has like a you don't want to say he has the game Keenan Allen had last week. But because of how much quarters cover six, like Vic Fangio wants to run, yeah. we've already seen Stefan Diggs this year. He's been targeted on 30% of his routes against zone schemes versus 20.6% against man coverage. It could be a game where he does get like, he could approach 15 targets, right? Like in that yeah. type of zone. Um, the James Cook is like probably the ultimate wild card in this game. And it's, 
because he's not typically in like a leverage spot. We talked about the Dolphins run game. So you can build bill stacks, say Allen, Diggs, maybe an ancillary piece, and run it back with uh, one of the Dolphins running backs or hell, maybe even two, uh, the explosive <laughs> game, you try to get that run out. And you're getting leverage on what you didn't bet it, that you're betting against, right? You didn't play yeah. Tua. You didn't play Tyreek Hill. You didn't play Jalen Waddle. So you're getting leverage. James Cook doesn't necessarily provide that same leverage on the inverse faction because he doesn't have a role at the goal line. So if he is the score a touchdown, it probably still goes through Josh Allen, like as a bet. So he doesn't provide that like inherent leverage that you would typically get playing the running back versus the, uh, the opposing passing game, right? Like playing the, the inverse side, the Tyreek or Waddle with two aside. So he's, he's an ultimate wild card in this game. So maybe he's just a stacking partner with Josh Allen, as opposed to trying to create leverage with hundred percent. I love that thought process, that theoretical breaking down, like what does playing this player mean? And what does it mean that I'm betting against that, that if then statement that we use so frequently at one week season, which is basically if this happens, then that means this. And that is a way to kind of visualize and conceptualize this idea of how do we build leverage smartly in a lineup? My main, I think, focus, and if for my MME folks listening, is probably to utilize James Cook as a pairing partner with one of the Miami backs, which is likely to be done at the lowest frequency from this game. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is that can be like, how does that play out? That can be James Cook sees seven targets, which is very much within his realm, uh, range of outcomes here. Um, catches five balls for 40 yards, and that removes the need for one of those touchdowns. But we're still betting on James Cook eclipsing 100 yards, and I think this game sets up well for him to have a shot at that. He's done it once. He's come very close the other time. Um, and from a like conceptual perspective of who James Cook is this year, He's third in the league in rushing right now. So this guy, the, the problem is that's all coming between the 20s and Latavius Murray. And, you know, the, <laughs> they the gave him one Damian shot Harris. last week to punch yeah. one in. And then he, they, <laughs> they took him it. right off the field. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Latavius Murray is seeing those inside the five runs. Damian Harris is mixing in in the red zone. Each of those guys have a rushing touchdown this year. And James Cook does not. So, Yeah. I don't know what to make of that, but uh, he is second in the NFL and explosive run yardage created. So like if he, if he were to have a rushing touchdown, uh, the probability that it would not come at the goal line, at least he it's in his range of outcomes to have like a a 15 yard touchdown run or, you know, even further. Uh, But yeah, if they get inside the five, then (laughs) don't get tackled inside the five, dude. Uh, Which is it's like the varsity blues running back from the movie Varsity Blues. He's got a score, like you know, uh, we got Lance Arbor here and Josh Allen, you know, soaking up these (laughs) these touchdowns. Yeah, seriously, it's maddening their usage. But for the second week in a row, we spent the first 20 minutes of the show discussing the top game environment of the week. So I'm gonna throw it over to you directly and let's talk about some of these. I don't even want to call them secondary, but these secondary game environments that could pop off for some hidden ceiling for us this week. Yeah, I don't know where we want to start. If we want to start ugly, we're going to start back. I mean, we could say, you know, just look at the late swap situation and say, you know, look at Raiders Chargers. Obviously, we're recording this at noon on a Friday and we have not got official word on Jimmy Garoppolo's availability. Obviously, we would love for him to be 
available in this game because you know we have a situation it's like with the vikings last week I mean, we have two defenses that are just giving up the bag every week i mean we saw mm-hmm. the raiders wake up a dormant kenny pickett on sunday night football last week the chargers once again uh you know were absolutely eviscerated uh through the air so they're giving up these huge plays and we've got this raiders team that just has this hyper condensed usage tree I so mean, beautiful we, We've seen it with Jacoby Myers back. I mean, Jacoby in the two games, Jacoby Myers and Devontae Adams have played. They have 70% of the team targets. Like we know where it's going and we know we want to target the pass game. And we've got this game at four o'clock, right? Versus this game at one o'clock. That's going to have a lot of the ownership pulled to it. uh, Especially if we don't have Jimmy Garoppolo, but we've seen Devontae Adams even last year have a 30 point game with Jarrett Stidham against the 49ers of all teams. So like, You know, is he a guy that's going to go overlooked? We have direct leverage spots because Keenan Allen's going to be popular. We're going to see Josh Palmer draw ownership, especially if Austin Eckler is out. So, I mean, this game has a lot of, I think, more pieces in it, especially when you factor in salary, that could impact the slate actually more than the Miami-Buffalo game. Yes, you brought up one of our key phrases here at One Week Season, and that's the potential for late swap. This slate is very interesting for the potential for late swap. We have Debo Samuel, who is questionable, has yet to practice this week. Brandon Ayuk has been on the injury report. We know that the 49ers have scored 30 or more points in now 8 of 10 Brock Purdy starts, so we can expect them to put up some points. And we know Kyle Shanahan is very similar to that discussion we had about Mike McDaniel, where it's, a concentrated offense that becomes more concentrated when one of the primary pieces are out. So there's a lot going on with the potential for some late swap ability for the 49ers. You mentioned the hyper concentration of Las Vegas. And now we also have Mike Williams out for the chargers. And we have Austin Eckler who returned to practice for the first time uh, since his ankle injury, but we know the team is on by next week. So there is a ton of moving pieces with the late three games in this slate that could basically form, I don't know, I don't even know what to say. Like it could create this situation where it creates a ton of hyper-concentrated offenses in good spots in the late portion. So yeah, super interesting. Let's talk, we talked real quick about Las Vegas um, and Devontae Adams, and he's priced at a point where, yeah, we, probably don't expect um, exorbitant amount of ownership to flow his direction. We also have Jacoby Myers, who you mentioned is priced down at only 5.5 in salary on DK. What is your interest level in a guy like that? And do you think he's going to generate some ownership? Do you think he's going to be sneaky at all? Uh, it, you, I do think he'll probably be, I think both of those guys, because of the quarterback situation right now, it's hard to like, look at like projected ownership, even with that situation. But yeah, I think with where both are priced and I think where I think a lot of the meta wants to skate to on this slate that they will probably be under owned. Um, especially when you think like wide receiver at the top, we're going to get inherently, you know, a lot of pull to digs because of the, what we talked about, obviously, you know, Tyreek and Jefferson are always going to orbit their own. Uh, roster ship and then jamar chase is facing the titans uh yes so we're, we've got a lot pulling away from Devonte adams where he's priced and and keenan you know keenan allen is going to be an absolute because keenan allen fanduel said screw it we're gonna pri-, he's the same price yeah. basically as jefferson and 
and um, Tyreek. They, they were like, screw it. Because he because now going back to last year, this isn't just like a, a couple game sample at Keenan Allen. His last nine games, he's been a top 12 scoring wide receiver in six of them. And he's led all wide receivers in scoring three of those nine weeks, which is a super high rate when you think of the wide receiver position. Uh, to just outright lead the position in scoring. But DraftKings has kind of been slower to like make him an, like a full elite wide receiver. He's still, don't, don't get me wrong, he's still highly priced. You have to pay to get Keenan Allen. Yeah. But he's probably still like at least probably six to 800 cheaper than probably what he's actually performing at uh, compared to some of those other guys. So he's going to be really popular. So you get inherent like, uh, you know, late swap leverage off of him, especially if you're chasing points, right? Because he's going to just be more popular. And then Jacoby Myers is priced in kind of that just nebulous zone where either people want to, you don't see a lot of like guys played in like the, the mid fives really. Right. Like almost ever. So people either just want to go down, they're going to go down to take Dell. They're going to go down to Josh Palmer. Uh, yep. You know, will they even play Quentin Johnston in this game? Uh, you know, I do want to bring up Marvin Mims at some point, your guy. Oh, no, uh, we're going to talk. We're going to talk. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so I do think that the Vegas guys will probably i believe be under owned because i still think there's a performance level especially in a full ppr site like DraftKings. um there is value that i think for those guys to, to be if you're chasing points later on to get to those guys if you're playing now i pose this question to you and we'll get to the some of the other juicy stuff as well here in a minute but if you're playing Devonte adams and or jacoby myers do you think this is a situation where a 4.9 brian hoyer is at all feasible is that something that you would you would jump on this week probably not but i also don't want to get too down the the rabbit hole because like you know last week i came on and talked about you know maybe dawson knox in this thing and then he was like active like an hour after we got off the air and i was like yeah yeah. so i don't want to like go down like this whole like another five to six minute tangent of like this variable that like might not even exist (laughs) but uh i mean but if you're if you say like you had you like you have herbert lineups though and you're you're chasing you, you might have to do that, right? Like you might, you might have to, you might have to go that route or to get to Purdy. You might have to get to Purdy or something else later because Herbert's going to be so popular if you're chasing points. Like I don't think you're going to be able to make up the ground through charger stacks in the afternoon. Yeah, that's valid. And when I'm, when I'm looking at like the overall composition of the slate to kind of just real quickly tangent, tangentially talk about this um, as far as paying down for a quarterback, we have to kind of realize what that is saying. Like, what do we need to happen if you're paying that far down? We've, we've talked a little bit about this in the past, but if you're paying for one of these really cheap, you know, sub 5,500 quarterbacks, you're basically saying that they can put up like a five X type multiplier and get you 25 fantasy points. But you're also saying that these high priced quarterbacks on the slate cannot put or do not put the slate out of reach because right. if they put the slate out of reach and they put up a 40 burger, that is a score that you had to have or you're not winning anything. So can that happen on the slate? Well, we have Josh Allen at 8,200. We have Jalen Hurts at 8,000 against Washington that they should absolutely shred. We have Herbert that you talked about down at 7,800. Lamar Jackson, 7,700 in what is now the most difficult matchup in the NFL against Cleveland. And then Tua Cousins, Richardson, but you notice a lot of okay. We'll throw in, in Fields Burrow. Well. I mean, I don't think Burrow, Burrow. draws yeah. dead in this spot. It, obviously, the Titans are never going to sneak through anybody. Yeah, so we'll go all the way down to Burrow. That's a good shout. That's a list of what one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight quarterbacks that would need to 
again, we use this term loosely, but fail to put the slate out of reach in order for a guy like Brian Hoyer or any number of these pay down type quarterbacks to be in the optimal discussion. And yes, like there's a lot that goes into that discussion. We don't need optimal uh, to win these contests, all that. But I think it's important to view that discussion in the terms of optimal because it is highly in the theoretical realm, as in how do we make sure that we're positioning ourselves to maximize expected value? We need to be thinking about things in these terms. And I think it's easiest to do at the quarterback position because we can visualize like what paying down for one of these lower price guys means a little bit easier. And there's more variables when you're talking about wide receivers or even tight ends. So that's an interesting discussion to be had this week. Me being the sicko that I am, I might build a roster with a Hoyer double stack. Let's go. I mean, to be like, again, I need you to get 25 points. And if your 70 to 80% of your production through the air is expected to go through two players, that becomes an interesting discussion as in if Devontae Adams puts up 12 catches for 100 plus yards and two touchdowns, and Jacoby Myers breaks 100 yards and scores a touchdown, which is kind of what you would need from that player pairing uh, in a GPP. What does that mean for Brian Hoyer? Well, he's probably well, approaching. Garoppolo's only 5'3", looking at it, too, to be honest. If Garoppolo yeah. plays, I think that he fits that. I mean, Garoppolo's come close. He's had two really good games for fantasy. I know real-life football, different. He didn't play great on Sunday, but he had points on, yeah. on Sunday night. <laughs> and that's exactly what we're talking about. And last game, you look at he put up. Again. He's gonna, I think he's drawn live for the bonus for sure on DraftKings. And that is kind of what we're talking about. And also there's that discussion of like, I'm kind of viewing this situation as Jimmy G does not play because we have had exactly zero players get concussed and then play the next week. Um, so far this season, it probably has a lot to do with Tua and what happened last year and all the new protocol rules. Um so I'm kind of approaching this spot as Tua does not play uh, or not Tua, uh, or Jimmy, Jimmy G does not play. So yeah, I don't know that that's uh, a lot of talk about a guy named Brian Hoyer that probably <laughs> didn't need to happen, uh, but that's kind of how to conceptualize the quarterback position in particular and how to kind of build that leverage smartly, I think. So it was important to have. Yeah, yeah. To, to answer uh, Chris's question in the chat, I don't think that Keenan is going to go overlooked on DraftKings at all, but on FanDuel he will because of where the, the, the structurally how he's priced and people want to inherently always play Keenan Allen on a full PPR site versus FanDuel anyways. But, uh, you know, looking at projected ownership, obviously it's Friday, but like he's going to be really popular still on DraftKings. Yeah, and all of that... And, and honestly, though, we, of... should, we should say that, though, in the context of we're probably still going to see flat ownership overall at this stage of the season. Like we're not pushing 30% on any of these guys. Yeah. So also it's not, it's not the levels where you have to ignore the chalk either. Yep. And while we expect Keenan Allen to have some ownership, he probably is not going to be as highly owned as Joshua Palmer. Um, either who's priced at 4k. Oh, no. uh, that's an interesting discussion. Let's talk about that real quick. Let's move to that, which is also a part of the late part of this slate. Um, and the Chargers, if we're putting ourselves in Kellen Moore's shoes and we are thinking about how do we and we, we can make these statements because 
Kellen Moore has a history of being adaptable in his offense and putting an offense together based to maximize the talent that he has on the field. We have now a rookie wide receiver in Quentin Johnston who has not been utilized. And we have to, at some point, be honest with ourselves and say, do we think that he's not being utilized because Kellen Moore is an idiot? Or do we think he's not being utilized because Kellen Moore is really, really smart and Quint he sees something that he's missing so far in Quentin Johnston? No, I, I think it's just the, the bridge of Quentin Johnston, right? Like he played an air raid offense in college. Yeah. Uh, he, he didn't do a lot of traditional, you know, wide receiver, like what are what NFL wide receivers asked to do. He was more of a yak guy, which is, you know, a lot of people thought he was like a, you know, down the field target, but yeah, I think it's more acclimation to what an NFL offense is going to ask from a wide receiver. And they're bringing him along in that capacity, which, you know, again, that's going to signal that Joshua Palmer is going to, be on the field a lot more in week four than Quentin Johnston. Now, when we have this conversation in week 14, it could be different. Yeah. But for week four, the slate we're approaching now, I would anticipate Josh Palmer to be on the field for 90% plus of the team dropbacks uh, in this game. The wild card is Austin Eckler's involvement because removing Austin Eckler from this offense, we talked about it with big Mike two weeks in a row that like the yeah. targets have to go somewhere else. You have a running back, in Joshua Kelly, that's not going to command targets. So those targets inherently get funneled to another player. And big Mike was the next talented player. Joshua Palmer has not been the type of talent to command targets on his own. But if you remove a 15% target share from Austin Eckler, like, and he's by default, the second proxy best target on the offense, like that's a huge boost to him. I actually, if Eckler plays coming under on Josh Palmer would be like a real savvy move. Uh, because Eckler's going to command those tar- command his own targets, but we have to wait and see if you know Eckler's even going to be available. It's it's just still everything's really up in the air and it's nebulous in that situation. But Eckler's actual availability in this game impacts a lot. Yes, one hundred percent. And if the Chargers were sitting at three and zero, or if the Chargers were sitting at two and one, even the the team would probably be a little bit more incentivized to rest Eckler with the team on bye in week five. But the fact that this team is one and two, and their only win was a narrow win last week in Minnesota. There's a little bit more like, oh, they they might be pushing Eckler to play here. We, we don't, and we don't even have all the information of like what Eckler's injury was. Like, yeah, it's ankle. It says ankle, probably was a high ankle sprain, and that timeline for recovery is typically four to six weeks, which would put him for week six <laughs> after their bye. So there's a lot of interesting aspects with that. We don't know what their decision-making process is going to be with Eckler, but if Eckler misses and all that discussion around Joshua Palmer is not a guy that's going to command a lion's share of the targets in this offense. Yeah, he's 4k, but and in that same discussion of Quentin Johnston and who he is and what he's probably going to be asked to do in this offense, what do they have? Well, they have two tight ends in Gerald Everett and Donald Palmer, uh, Donald Parham, excuse me, who saw 50% or more of the offensive snaps a week ago. Do, does this offense shift, and assuming Austin Eckler is out, assuming Quentin Johnston is not going to be asked to play an 80% snap share, does this offense shift, knowing who Kellen Moore is, to a higher utilization of 12 personnel? Is that something that could happen? And does that 
does that boost the between the twenties role of a guy like Donald Parham, who has been utilized heavily in his career in the red zone, but has not seen much work between the twenties. What's your take on the tight end situation here? Yeah. And the chargers have that, that, that kind of luxury too to, to use more 12 personnel in that same concept of the 11 and a half personnel rule that we always talk about. Right. With Gerald Everett, because you can flex him out a little yes. bit more than a traditional tight end. And then you can, then again, you have that, like, you still have like a lot of 11 personnel concepts, but you're running it out of 12 personnel. So I do think that we're going to see a lot of that incorporated, at least in this week. Like I said, th- th- this Chargers defense, like without the loss of Big Mike, is going to probably be different 10 weeks from now than a week now. But how do they calibrate for this immediate loss in week four? Uh, and I do believe that it will be through those tight ends, especially if there's no Austin Eckler, right? Uh, because you can also use, like they did last week, they used Joshua Kelly basically as a pass protector. I would put air quotes yeah. around pass protection, what he was doing, but <laughs> he was in there, he was out there trying his damnedest to, to, to block for Justin Herbert, but he's not running routes, basically, is what I'm saying. And that means the tight ends yeah. are going to be running routes and not in pass protection. So I do think that's a great path. And I also think, too, when you look at the concept, the, the, the slate in general from the tight end position stance, like, Maybe they don't run more 12 personnel. Maybe they do. But like there's TJ Hawkinson who's expensive and you know what you're getting. And there's kind of a chasm of what we're doing at tight end the rest of the way out. You know, Travis Kelsey's not on the main slate. We brought up the Browns matchup. They're kind of begging you to play Mark Andrews a little bit. They're like, he would keep dropping him. Are you going to play him? But are are people going to be comfortable making that click? I think people will get more comfortable playing Kittle if Debo is ruled out or we get kind of an inclination that he won't play by the time Sunday comes around. But then after that, you see like where everyone's gravitating to and it's guys like Pat Fryer move uh, down at the bottom, you know, it's, and it's these guys that also have inherently low floors. So at $2,800, you're getting a guy in Donald Parham. Like even if you get a zero, what he frees up for the rest of your roster still probably is usable based on what other tight ends are doing across the fantasy football landscape and what, especially ones that will be rostered on other DraftKings rosters. And then you also know, like he is kind of like a, he has a goal line role. Uh, you know, he literally has four end zone targets already this year. He leads the team in red zone targets. So like there's a, you know, uh, a path there where he, he's basically a goal line back at tight end and could also get more in between the 20 work. And also if he just sucks, a lot of the field's probably going to suck too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, this is true. Yeah, you brought up an interesting point. It's like, yeah, Donald Parham has seen four end zone targets of his seven total targets this season. So he's obviously a guy that is utilized heavily in the red zone. I brought this up earlier. I want to talk about it real quick with this particular spot. And that is the Raiders do not have somebody opposite Max Crosby who can win because of this whole Jones saga that is going on. And we won't speak to that here, but... The fact that Jones is not here to bring that guy who can get to the quarterback opposite Max Crosby has led to this extremely low pressure rate to this point in the season. They are second to last in pressure rate at just 14.2%, and they are blitzing at 27%. So that's not what you want to see out of a an effective defense is a blitz rate that is higher than their pressure rate. I mean, look at like all the majorly good defenses over the past five years, the jets, the 49ers, you're going to see their pressure rate is greater than their blitz rate. And what does that mean? That means that they're getting to the quarterback without having to dedicate additional players to do so. The Raiders are still trying to generate pressure by blitzing 
but that's not effective. What does that mean? Who are they blitzing with? They're blitzing with linebackers. They're blitzing with edge players and they're blitzing with safeties. So what does that do behind that? If they're not getting pressure and they're dedicating one of those guys to a blitz, the open of the middle of the field is less congested and it opens up areas for guys like Keenan Allen, guys like a pass catching running back, maybe Austin Eckler, maybe not going to be Joshua Kelly, a guy like Donald Parham, if he sees increased utilization in this offense. So that's a very interesting discussion to be had. And I think that a guy like Parham all, like does a couple of things for us. He opens up a ton of salary and he gets us exposure to an offense that we expect to succeed in ways that the field is likely not going to get to. So super interesting for me, uh, Donald Parham this week. Let's continue the discussion about the late games and we'll move over to the San Francisco 49ers. I, I gave the, the Cliff Notes version of that discussion as far as Debo's health. Uh, Brandon Ayuk is also on the injury report, but we expect him to play. He played through the same shoulder issue last week. What's your read on this situation? Um, and I want to pay particular attention, I think, in this, this discussion about the Arizona Cardinals. Um, with that, I'm not going to give you any more leads, but that'll be your lead in for this game. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we've seen now the 49ers in, the, in this target tree because we know there's a finite uh, amount of targets available, you know, in this in this offensive system. And that's not conducive to the amount of talent here. Like there typically is a guy that usually gets frozen out of this offense. It's more or less always been George Kittle from a volume perspective when both Debo and Ayuk have been on the field. But when one of these guys misses, like there's just like huge boosts for for like everyone else. We saw it again last week on Thursday, right? Ayuk is out. Debo and Kittle end up smashing. When it gets down to two guys, it works. When it's all three, someone gets cannibalized. It's usually Kittle. Um, yeah. So if we don't get Debo by then, it gives a huge boost to both those guys. Also, the Cardinals are back on the flow chart again, for like tight ends. They've allowed a tight end one score yeah. every week again this season. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the Gannon style of defense too. It's not the, the you know the old Steve Wilkes style, but like Gannon is playing extremely passive defense. Uh, they aren't they aren't blitzing the quarterback. They aren't playing like hardly any man coverage. They're not creating any pressure. That's like music to Brock Purdy's ears, right? Like mm -hmm. that's like where he lives. When Purdy hasn't been pressured, only Tua uh, has a higher you know quarterback rating than than Brock Purdy. He's having nine point seven yards for pass attempts when he's not pressured. Absolutely like bonkers. Again, that tree, you know that that coaching tree of having faith in. And I don't think they're going to bring a lot of pressure on Purdy in this game either. Uh, I think the other interesting component of this game is Christian McCaffrey, right? Like we saw two weeks ago. People oh, still want to pay for wide receivers more like Christian McCaffrey against the Rams. He was on the main slate last week, but like he still just doesn't have, he didn't have the ownership that like a player of his caliber, especially at running back where there's a big gap to the field and where Christian McCaffrey's operating right now yeah, uh, should be. And like, I don't know if that's going to continue, if that's something that continues to go overlooked, but he's such a bankable commodity for what you pay for. Um, and you know what you're getting for, even if he doesn't score touchdowns, which he's had, he has a touchdown in 12 straight games played, uh, but you're getting these 20 touch games, you're getting usage in the receiving game, you're getting touchdown equity. And it, and it, it feels like because the, the meta is to pay for one of these wide receivers, like he's going overlooked on these slates. Yes. I'm going to bring something up on the screen. Well, first we'll look at, uh, we'll look at Brock Purdy because he is one of the most consistent 
to put up like two plus touchdowns, but at a price and in that same discussion as a guy like Brian Hoyer, like what do we need from a guy like Brock Purdy in this spot? Well, we need him to put up 25 plus fantasy points and we need those other quarterbacks to fail. But because this offense just continues to hum along and score 30 plus points every week, we basically need, and he's highly unlikely Purdy, to eclipse and hit the bonus on DraftKings and hit 300 yards. So we're going to need three touchdowns. And where are those touchdowns going to come? Can this team score three touchdowns? Yes. What if he's throwing three to one to each of Kittle and Ayuk and CMC, and CMC's getting his touchdown through the air, which, based on historical performance in this offense, we know is possible. Now, does Brock Purdy become interesting? My answer is yeah. So let's remove this. Is this an okay allocation of salary on this slate? Just saying, like, we have a high confidence rate that that the 49ers are going to score 30 points. What if those touchdowns are flowing in this fashion? It, can this pay off something like this? And do you need a quote-unquote bring back in this situation? I don't know if you need to force the the bring back. Obviously, with the the 49ers makes it tricky. I mean, I listen, Drew Petzing's done an amazing job, you know, the, especially the past two weeks. Uh what he did last week against the Cowboys, I mean, the, the yes. run game, right? Like the, the the run scheme that they're that they're playing. Is it like they're like James Conner's ripping runs? It wasn't just the Rondell Moore run or the you know, the the Josh Dobbs long run, but like jo, jo, James Conner the past two weeks. Is not getting touched, you know, until he's five yards downfield. Now, is that going to have that has not been the 49ers' MO, right? Like, you know, being able to, to line up and just run the football on the 49ers. So, we're going to get a great litmus test of Drew Petzing uh, in this matchup. So, I'm really excited to kind of see how that plays out. I'm probably not going to play any James Conner because of the 40, the respect I have for the 49ers' defense, but it is an, an avenue. Uh, to kind of explore um, if you are going to like do runbacks or if you want to look at Rondell Moore, a guy who's now getting that weird usage, right? Like he's getting, he's almost like a, a half running back, a uh, half wide receiver now. Yeah. When he had the six targets, he had the three rushing attempts. Like that's at least usage that like at his salary that is, is fine to take a shot on. Yeah. In my mind, I don't think you need to force any Arizona right. involvement if you're attacking this 49ers and, and you led with that. Um, I, I I'm in concurrence uh, agreement with that. Um, but it's interesting. One, this game is a late game Two, We don't expect people to be overly excited about completely diving into uh, like a, a game overstack or a team overstack with the 49ers. If Debo is out. Yeah, we're going to see Kittle garner some ownership. We're going to see Ayuk garner some ownership. But nobody's going to be overly excited about like throwing Barack Purdy into two of those guys or completely overstacking this spot, which I think is interesting. Um, and yeah, no one in order to, to play to, like, Purdy for some reason, he's always he's so yeah, so reliable. Yeah, exactly. And this is a guy like he failed to put up two passing scores once this year. And like the, the world was like, no, uh, this, this can't happen. <laughs> this guy is just scoring two touchdowns every single week, but yeah, I don't know. Is there upside there for a full overstack? I don't know if my mind is made up yet, but it's an interesting um, discussion to be had, I think. And particularly because this game is on the late slate, uh, late part of the slate, and we don't expect exorbitant amounts of ownership to kind of flow here. Um, 
All right. So we talked about, we don't have to talk on the other late game. Um, there is one interesting perspective to look at the Dallas side of this game in the sense that we know the, um, the Patriots are likely going to play a lot of man coverage. Right. What does CD lamb do against man coverage? He absolutely dominates it. Um, not going to have a lot of ownership. He's priced at a range below the elites at what? 7,500 here. Uh, where is he? Yeah. 7,500. Um, and it's interesting because in any matchup where he's being schemed utilization, particularly against man coverage, where his targets per route run um, is off the charts, there is the potential for a guy like CD to put up 102 and become optimal. And that is probably going to go overlooked on the slate. Let's yeah, talk about in my, my column too, uh, especially for late swapping purposes, right? You know, if you're yes. coming in chasing points, you know, Keenan is going to be highly rostered. Uh, you know, the, we probably will see Devante be a little under roster, but he's going to come in well below both of those players. Um, and like you said, already 3.43 yards per out running its man coverage to open this season. If you remember a couple of years ago, and I know you're going back a couple of years, when these two teams played, like Lamb absolutely eviscerated the Patriots. Yeah. Uh, like it just absolutely killed them. But uh, yeah, if, they're, if the Patriots are going to be aggressive, and, and, and we did see them be aggressive against the, another man beater, a man, man beater uh, in A.J. Brown in week one, they didn't care. Like they, yeah. they, they played a bunch of man coverage that game. Uh, he had like a 50 yarder called back that he juggled out of bounds. It wasn't a complete pass. So it's not to say like he lost it, but uh, there was a chance for AJ Brown to have like 130, 140 in that game. 100%. And CD, like we said, CD is a guy that can do that in this spot. He's also and a guy he, that can catch like 10 or 12 passes too. It's not like he's yeah. like reliant on like big plays. He's a guy that can have like the, the 10 to 12 catch game. 100%. This. We're already in minute 50, man. So we got to, I think we got to talk about two spots. We suck at this. (laughs) Or we're really freaking good at it. Let's go with that. Let's go with that. (laughs) We can do this for hours, guys. Um, Let's talk about this game. I think this is a game. This could be a game where you have to get right this week because it, when you talk about either strength on strength matchups or weakness on weakness, sorry, this one's a weakness on weakness matchup. You what it does from like the outcome, the range of outcomes of the game is it provides this massively wide range of outcomes. You could see just both teams be extremely shitty in this instance where it's a weakness on weakness. We know um, both offenses have not looked good. We know both defenses are bottom two in the league right now. Um, Or you could see the offenses just continue to struggle in this particular game. There's a lot of interesting behind the scenes moving pieces we have a guy like luke getzi and his offense who is trying to it looks like they're trying to force justin fields to be this pocket passer plus that also has mobility um that same kind of career the trajectory mike situation all over again man remember yes greg knapp greg knapp mike vick yes it's, it's like the same thing. It's like Josh Allen did it. Okay. Jalen Hurts did it. So now we're going to make Justin Fields do it. We're going to make him develop to be this pocket passer that also has mobility. Over the second half of the 2022 season, we saw Getze just basically design an offense to maximize what he had. He didn't have a lot, but what he had was a highly mobile and extremely elite with the ball in his hands, Justin Fields in the open field. 
does this offense at some point, and again, they're building something special, guys. He said so himself. Does this offense shift back to a, yo, dude, just go out and ball? Like, I know, I know we watched the tape, and, and even – even field said so like this week he's like yes i watch the tape i do my study but when i hit the field i just want to go ball it's like does this team ever go back to just balling i don't know on the other side we have beat reporters saying on air about the denver broncos that they're he, he can't say what the changes were because they're not allowed to talk about what they see in practice but he said expect personnel changes we got to talk about it. Is this the yeah. Marvin Mims week, guys? Is we gotta, it? <laughs> we got to sneak it through. <laughs> so Especially Josh Palmer's at 4K. We got to sneak it yes, through. Yes, we could. And I think it is. I think it is, guys. I think this is what we've all been waiting for. Uh, what are you seeing from this game environment? And that was a lot of conjecture, speculation. It, it, can this game be a game that you kind of had to have pieces for uh, or of? Absolutely. I mean, it, it, obviously we take the Bears offense to get there from a game environment stance, but on the Broncos side, like I'm confident in the Broncos offense. They, they've been fine. The Broncos offense has been fine. Like they, that wasn't the, that's why I thought with some of the changes too might be deployed, might be on the defensive side versus offensive that we haven't been yeah. hit on. That's why I hope that, I hope not. I, listen, Marvin Mims leads the team in receiving yardage and he's run 27 routes of the season. <laughs> it was the same set of the early season but yes. like russ has been fine like even russ in a down outing last week that would have been his fifth highest scoring game last year like yeah uh, he i think he's fine and when you look at the bears in general uh they've allowed 25 or more points now going back to last year in 13 straight games uh we've seen baker mayfield get there we've seen jordan love get there what ironically patrick mahomes threw for the fewest yards for pass attempt against the bears out of three quarterbacks that they faced so i am confident in the denver side i think denver is going to get points in this game Can, from a game environment stance we need the the bears to, to draw some life here to draw any type of pulse this is the ultimate stoppable force versus movable object because yes. broncos defense is in the same boat like yeah you got shredded by the dolphins but they allowed 35 points to the commanders two weeks a week two weeks ago. They allowed the most yards per drive in week one to the Raiders. Like, if if there ever was a time for the Bears to just even give us something, man, give us like yeah. find a way to 24, right? Like just find this a is, way to 24. Like this is the pregame speech. It's like, give me something, man. <laughs> Just find a way. And they're getting killed on like downfield throws. That's the thing too. It's like, does fields have this ability because it's not just the Tua stuff on throws 10 yards or further downfield in week one, Jimmy Garoppolo was eight of nine on those throws. Sam Howell was six of 10 on those throws in week two. Uh, these are not guys with like, you know, that, that typically occupy like that level of passing. Uh, so it's like, man, like if there ever was, a time bears offense give us some life but i do think the broncos side i think you can confidently play broncos pieces in this game 100 percent agree i want to bring up something on the screen that is super interesting and i think is going extremely overlooked this is our dude cole commit this season after his breakout year week, he got <laughs> you got got too <laughs> but look at these numbers guys Look at this. This is not this is somebody who is going to hit at some point once the Bears figure it out. And if this is the week that the Bears figure it out, this is a guy who has 
a 95.5% route participation rate. He is a guy who has seen two red zone looks already. And we have to take that into context of this is not a team that's in the red zone a whole heck of a lot. And this is a guy who has yak ability. He's got 59 yards after the catch, which ranks seventh in the league on only 11 receptions. So when you talk about where is where are the paths to upside from this game? And in my mind, it runs through Chicago from the sense of the Broncos have a top 10 offensive line. They're probably going to be comfortable playing this. This could be the first game of the season where they are able to control the game environment with their offensive line, with being able to maintain sustained drives and um, put together time of possession. This could be their first chance to do so. But if they are pushed, knowing who their coaching staff is with Joe Lombardi and, and Sean Payton, that's where the upside, I think, comes. And this is a very interesting, now let me change again the screen. This is a very interesting way to get upside from this spot in a way that the field is not going to do. Beautiful. Look at it. It's like the fountain it's, gift. It's so beautiful. <laughs> if Fields and Cole Komet are hitting, what does Cole Komet need in order to be in the optimal discussion? He did it one time last year. He was second uh, or second to optimal one week as well. He needs to score two touchdowns. If Fields is optimal and, and Cole Komet is scoring two touchdowns, he has all kinds of outs to being optimal if he's throwing for two touchdowns. So this is very interesting. It unlocks some potential for Marvin Mims upside, considering all the things that we talked about already. Fields is probably going to go under-owned on this spot. Uh, and Cole Komet is kind of forgotten about because everybody likes the bright and shiny new toy in DJ Moore. Well, it's like Cole Komet is on the field. He's running routes. And he's still that same yak potential guy. And when you're talking about yak potential against the, this form of the Denver Broncos, there's a ton of upside here with this spot. And it feels so gross, but it feels so good at the same time. I tried last <laughs> week. I mixed Komet into my, because it's tight end, you know, we're trying to make things happen at tight end. And I see the same thing as you do, the opportunity. And it's like, it's going to happen. Like, can I be there early? And it, I'll yes. tell you what, last week was not early still. <laughs> <laughs> From experience, last last week, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, man. Um, I think real quick, I, I don't think we can end this without talking about the Cincinnati Bengals. So I'll throw it over to you. Give me a quick elevator pitch on the Bengals this week. I mean, they're gonna they're gonna throw the ball fifty times. That's really like that's my huge <laughs> elevator pitch. Is they're gonna have at least forty pass attempts, probably pushing fifty. Yeah, uh, against this Titans defense. So that's really it. That's like all you need to know. Uh, you bring you up a great. You brought up a great point though too earlier. So like. The, the history, though, of Jamar Chase and T. Higgins simultaneously doing it together is very thin, mm -hmm. uh, especially usually when Chase, like when Chase goes off, like Higgins typically does next to nothing. Um, so it is hard to run doubles, like just from that top-down stance, but I guess there was ever yeah. a time to do this. But, I mean, yeah, I, I obviously Chase is going to draw ownership. He always does. But, like, yeah, the, the Burrow side, I think, is – probably the most interesting yes and it's most interesting because 
for the first time under Zach Taylor, this offense did things in week three to try and exploit two high looks. They brought Chase into the slot. He had six mm-hmm. targets from the slot, which is by far a career high. He ran a career high uh, snap rate from the slot. And why is that important? Because this team does not have that downfield safety manipulator to be able to hold a safety to the side of the field. That would be Jamar Chase, but they're not going to utilize him as this, hey, go run deep and uh, we're going to pass it underneath type thing. But they also have other tools that they've been very slow to react to to manipulate safeties against too high. And why is that important? We can expect Tennessee to be running too high a lot. And if Jamar Chase is going to be this queen chess piece and moved around the formation and schemed usage and still running deep routes, but now doing it out of the slot and being in motion pre-snap, those are things that when paired with a quarterback's eyes, his body positioning, his hips can influence an opposing safety. And finally, we have seen it. It is happening. Look at like, compare it to two years ago when Patrick Mahomes and Joe Burrow were both like, yeah, dude, this too high stuff. We're trying to figure it out. Eric Bieniemy and Andy Reed instituted this gadget role in their offense. It was McCole Hardman. Then it, when he got hurt, it was Jarek McKinnon. This year it was Kadarius Tony. When he didn't play last week, it was Jarek McKinnon again. That is their answer. Plus Marquez Valdez Scantling running deep to attack and have success against too high. The Bengals had not had that until last week. It's the first time I saw it. And that's exciting. And play Jamar Chase. <laughs> that's all I got. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the 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 payback on that. The one I've given Zach Taylor a lot of grief over the, the, the his tenure with, with the Bengals. But the one yes. thing they've constantly done since they drafted Jamar Chase is acquiesce the offense to Jamar Chase. And mm-hmm. you saw it as a rookie when he was winning over the top, and teams started to take that away. They found a way to get him more targets underneath. We saw last year when he became like a a full a full field wide receiver, and then we saw the slow start this year. Uh, what can we do to make Jamar Chase work? And they've consistently worked around that. So I do give Zach Taylor credit for that because us as fantasy gamers appreciate when coaches try to get the best players the football. Yes, thank you. And do do more of that safety manipulator stuff with Jamar. That, that was great. Do more of that. <laughs> as always, Rich, it has been a damn pleasure. You can find us every week on Friday at 12 Eastern, searching for ceiling. You know where to find Rich, but if you are new here, go check out Rich's work. His almost exclusively housed over at Sharp Football Analysis. Check out one week's season. And until next week, we'll see you at the top of the leaderboards, fam. One week season.